mountains and on the skyline. Everybody, welcome back to the hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right, I am really excited for this week's guest. It is Max Carl. Now, Max may not be a household name. However, anyone who knows will tell you that Max has one of the greatest voices of any living soul singer, especially white soul singer. So let me give you some background. His he started out in the 70s under his given name Max Gronenthal as a solo artist put out a couple of albums neither of them really went anywhere huge and t- to this day they're actually really hard to find but he eventually in the 80s he fronted Jack Mack and the Heart Attack he put out he changed his name to Max Carl and he put out another solo album in 1985 called The Circle which featured this the title track one of my favorite songs of all time which you may know from being on the Weird Science soundtrack all right So, for the last 16 or 17 years, he's been fronting Grand Funk Railroad. But his probably his biggest claim to fame is that in the late 80s, early 90s, he was picked to front 38 Special. And during that time, he co-wrote and sang what became one of their biggest hits ever, Second Chance. Now we talk about that song later on. So you're gonna, if you don't know that name by that song by name, you're gonna recognize it when you hear it later. Along the way, Max has written songs that have been recorded by people like Kenny Loggins, Bette Midler, uh, Aaron Neville, Joe Cocker. He sang backup with legends like Rod Stewart and Don Henley. He's really done it all. And I have to tell you, to me, he seemed like just the dearest, kindest man. And I really am endeared and love people like that. You know how when you hear James Taylor interviewed, He just seems like such a gentle, kind, sweet person. And probably some of that's because of the music he makes and the way he comes off. Whether that's true or not, Max felt that same way to me. Just like the kindest soul. I really, really loved this conversation. I hope you will too. He called me from his home in Omaha, Nebraska. Before we go, when this song, The Circle, fades out, he's going to hit a note here as it's fading out that is mind-blowing. Listen up. I have to tell you how I became a Max Carl fan. Um, for years and years and years, the real, really the only thing I knew about you was The Circle from the Weird Science soundtrack. And I've always loved that song, and I know the scene exactly where it's playing in the background, and where is this voice coming from? And last fall, I, uh, it was one, I got in bed, it was a weekend, and I got in bed kind of late, it was about 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning, and I was on my computer, and I thought, I'm just going to check some email, and I thought, I'm in the mood to hear the circle. So I put it on on YouTube in the background, and I ended up sitting there for two hours, 
listening to the circle on a loop for two hours straight. <laughs> and uh and so I finally every time it would end and there's that part, there's that part at the end of the song where your voice just sails even further and and, and when it ends I think I, okay one more time I can do this one more time and anyway I ended up sitting there until four o'clock in the morning listening to the circle on a loop and I posted something on Facebook about it the next day I'm Facebook friends with Robert White Johnson who has been a guest oh. on this sh- on this show and he the next day commented saying what a great guy you were and one of the best soulful you know blue-eyed soul singers of all time and i thought okay clearly i need to investigate max carl deeper and so that's what i've been doing for like the last six months or whatever and i just love you so much so anyway that was you were responsible for one of my favorite songs ever a sleepless night but one of those worthwhile moments where i just don't want this song or this moment to end and so we, wow. we shared a moment like that anyway just wanted That's you to very moving. Yeah. Thank you. So you bet. So I'm going to ask you more about the weird science soundtrack in a bit, but I think it's really interesting that you come from Omaha. Where does a kid growing up in Omaha who wants to be a singer, what does he do? Where does he decide to go? And when did you decide to do this? Well, you know, uh, I, I, I graduated high school in 1968 in uh, a little town called Norfolk, Johnny Carson's hometown. There you uh, go. He went to born and raised there and went to high school there. The logical um, generation that was probably a little about seven to ten years older than I were the guys who were the, the children of World War II band guys. Mm-hmm. And the, the Midwest was littered with all these great places to play and not in the least National Guard armories. Mm-hmm. So there were these great, great ballrooms all over the place and National Guard armories. And uh, pretty, uh, there was a circuit that that started in every state, really, uh, in the Midwest. There was a radio station in Oklahoma City, KOMA, that mm. was broadcast late at night, and you couldn't, you, you couldn't, it took you a minute to dial past it. The signal was so yeah. big. Wow! So everybody advertised on those radio stations. So all these bands are coming through, and uh, there was a band in my from my high school called the Smoke Ring. That actually got a record deal and had a, a pretty good sized hit, top 40 hit, and they were on Bandstand in There was this really cool circuit. Uh, we had in Norfolk, Nebraska, probably three or four bands, and that town was about 10,000 people. Yeah. And uh, Omaha, I don't know how many bands, there must have been 20 of them here, but there, uh, were, there was mostly four pieces, you know, two guitars, bass, and drums, but there were a lot of horn bands, soul bands, so that's okay. how I got my start. Interesting. So you came up out of Omaha. Did you never at any point... Decide. I'm going to move. To, I'm going to follow my dreams and move to L.A. and try and be a rock star. What was? 
How did that path happen? Well, when I was uh, 19, a, a group from Lawrence, Kansas, that was another big sort of mecca mm -hmm. of bands, Mid-Continent Productions, John Brown. And there was a band there called the Fabulous Flippers, and they had four horns, and it was a pretty eclectic thing. We did we did a like a 10-minute West Side Story medley. Wow. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so I played bass on <laughs> everybody was nice. like was always, everybody switching instruments around I was the B3 player but that was my first you know, I went to my dad and said I could go do this and he said how much money are you going to make and I called him and he said do it so <laughs> right to him it was always about you know if you can make money go do it yeah uh, so I was practical a, a, a second year pre-med student at the University of Nebraska but that was not to be so that's oh. where I started then professionally okay Wow. Now, from what I can tell, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I can tell looking over your resume, it looks like your first real significant break was having Kenny Loggins record your song Nightwatch in 1978. Is that was that the first kind of major thing that happened to you or were there was there a lucky break or a moment of hearing yourself on the radio or a big record signing? Was there something else before that? In my Midwest pursuit here, I went to Oklahoma City to study with a, a real Creole piano player, Euclid August Hart. Oh, my and, gosh. And uh, oh. he was just still one of my best friends and this brilliant Nolans guy. Hey, Max, what's going on, man? <laughs> wonderful, wonderful person, family guy. <laughs> so it. I went there and, and played in bands uh, four or five sets a night, six nights a week, and practiced about five hours a day. Oh. And... Uh, Finally got my nerve up to go to L.A. in 76. And I had played for a brief moment with Tommy Bowen. You know who Tommy mm -hmm. was? Yep. Uh-huh. Well, he was. He grew up about 90 miles from me in Sioux City, Iowa. Did he really? And, uh, yeah. He, he had a band in Boulder. I, I did a little stint there. I was pretty much a gypsy nomad at that point, going to different places. I knew I could learn really well from him. And I it was, it was the first time I was ever just a stand-up singer in a band. That was huh. a, a big... I was like, because I was always the organ player. Okay. So he, he had, I played with him in 73, and then I went to Oklahoma City thereafter. And in 76, I drove all the way to L.A. from Boulder. And the next day, I was the very first night I, I went out in L.A., I literally ran into Tommy at a rehearsal place. Oh, and he, he grabbed me and said, uh, Mark Stein, and he decided to, he was playing keyboards, and he just, decided he didn't want to do this tour and it was kind of like boom like oh my god i need a guy right now and he uh -huh. literally just i literally came around a corner and ran into him literally boom oh, like, max <laughs> Tommy. he said um i need a keyboard player i said i'm there yeah so it was jimmy Hassett on bass you know who jimmy is in the yellow no, jacket i think i've heard that name oh sure 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 okay unbelievable bass player another great midwest drummer uh named oh shoot you know i'm still a little, i'll get back to that I'm okay still a little foggy i'm taking, I'm taking that's okay, cold, so, <laughs> that's okay. Uh, so so tommy i ran into tommy and he said i needed uh, a uh i need a keyboard player right now so we jumped in and took off and within all oh, five or six weeks out on this tour we, we went to miami and uh I, the very first night we played with Jeff Beck it was us and Jeff Beck oh. Jan Hammer was playing and uh, Tommy was a real serious partier and he 
had one that one night that everybody fears and I never forget it. Nine in the morning, you know, knock on the door and uh-huh. it's like Tommy Tommy is gone. So uh-huh. we all loaded up with our sorrow and headed back to LA. And there I was kind of stuck there and the next phase of it began. Now that, that band was Norma Jean Bell who played with Ma Vishnu, um Mark Cranny, who played actually for a little bit with Jethro Tull, but played with okay. um let's say uh Jean Luc Ponty. Sure. Uh, okay, I remember that name. And Jimmy Haslip, who was just just his if you Google Google him as listeners, you know, he plays with everybody, played with everybody. Uh-huh. Mostly producing jazz records now. Tommy and me. I, I my job was to stand over there, sit over there at the B three and hold the cord. <laughs> Because no the band was so free, and Tommy would start playing these solos, and it would go from like, and I would just right. count all the way through, you know, and it's like one, 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 keep just keep going one, stick with one, you know. Tommy right. would come over me and go. Until we'd have to sort of come back to earth, and they'd be ready to come back into the solo. Sure. Everybody had their eyes closed. And I'd be staring at Tommy, and he'd come over and he'd go, where's one? <laughs> so I'd go, one, two, three, four. I have this great picture of me when he, he was posting that to me, you know. So uh-huh. then he'd go around and re-corral all these, you know, uh, cats and yeah. uh, pull the band back in. That was an amazing band, but it ended wow. up pretty tragically. Yeah, yeah. So how did the Kenny Loggins thing happen then? Well, from there, uh, I went to Sweden. I spent a summer in Sweden. Oh, I was a, the leader of a, of a band there by a guy named Bjorn Skiffs, who was the singer on that Blue Swede Hooked on a Feeling. He's oh, a great sure. singer. Okay. And he wanted me to be his band leader. I don't know why. Uh, because <laughs> I was, <laughs> I had no credential for that. But uh-huh. I was working with Tommy and somebody at Capitol called me and said, I'm here with this guy. We'd love to meet you. And Bjorn was a wonderful guy, very charming guy. So I went to Sweden and spent a uh, summer there. And the day I had a friend who was working for the Doobie Buzz, he was a light guy. Hmm. Somehow I had a day off. I'm in Stockholm. And it was the day that Elvis Presley died. Oh, so this friend of mine called me and I went down to this beautiful hotel where these guys were. They had commandeered the bar. The whole band was in there. Um, I'd known them. I, I, they let me sit in with them um, a, a couple of times. It's Pat and Mike, and, you know, all those guys were always so nice uh-huh. to me. And I'd work with, uh, I knew Keith really well. Okay. And, uh, in any case, um, that that whole scene there, I sat in this bar with a little touch of America. I was extremely homesick. And mm-hmm. Keith Knudsen walked to the door and said, hey, guys, Elvis died. So there I was with these guys, and we all went into the slump, and I went over to the piano and started playing, and I started playing some of my songs. Then everybody was kind of listening to me. I wasn't, I was just playing, you know, Uh and uh, it was a big old bar. Before I knew it, this guy came over and said, can I tape one of these songs? I said, yeah, sure. So he taped all of my songs, and I was sitting there, McDonald came over, and Mike McDonald came over and sat down with me, and we wrote a song together just sitting there, you know. No way. And, um, so I get, I, I, I get, you know, in those days, years ago, I, uh-huh. <laughs> this is before dogs could vote. <laughs> right. All right. So 
people would call you and, uh, you know, 77 people would call you to be like an eight second gap, literally. Oh, right. And okay. Impossible to have a conversation. So I did told everybody, well, mom and dad, don't call me. Yeah. So I, I stopped in LaGuardia on my way back to LA from London and my mom, I called my mom. She said, there's somebody from Los Angeles that's really kind of desperate to get a hold of you. You better call these guys. So I called this guy whose name was Marty Wolf, who was my connection with the Dewey Brothers. Mm-hmm. And he said, Ron Nevison is producing this act, and his name is Mike Finnegan. Do you know who Mike is? Uh-uh, I don't. He's a legendary middle, mid, Midwest blues singer. Okay. Keyboard player. He plays with Bonnie, but he, oh. played, on, he, played, he played on Rainy Day Woman with, with Hendrix. Oh, he, there you go. Okay. Mike Finnegan. He's okay. still one of my idols. So wow. he'd heard this tape I made at that bar in the day in Stockholm and the day Elvis died and loved four of my songs. So it was like Saturday I was in LaGuardia heading back to LA. And wow. And they were were doing a session on Monday, which included Les Dudek, Jim Krieger, Mike Finnegan, mm-hmm. Bob Glob, Jeff Picaro, and I was the session leader. So I had Sunday then <laughs> to sit down with a pen and paper and write charts out for all these guys Amazing. and walk into that session, you know, like the rookie on a squad with all the hall stuff. Yeah, yeah. And wow. Ron Nevison sitting there. And it went very well. Yeah. And that was my that was my big break because that's when people started noticing me and uh and I I went on to actually get a record deal with that. Yeah. Came out of, it all came from all that angst and that the day crazy. that Elvis died. Wow. <laughs> that is crazy. Now, when yeah, you well, wrote Nightwatch, um, you know, Nightwatch is such a, it's long. It's like seven and a half minutes long and it's very spacey. Yeah. It's not like a lot of his other stuff. When you wrote it, were you imagining it sounding like the kind of the trippy, spacey production that it ended up being? Or in your mind, was it more of like a straightforward, you know, pop song? Well, Kenny came over to my house. Uh, Ron, Ron Nevison was producing all his records. and I, I was so naive. I would walk into the record plant. He'd be mixing them and, hey, Ron, and just walk right by him and go <laughs> into the studio and start playing practicing piano on these big concert grands, you know. <laughs> and and he came out me one day. He, he was always nice and kept smiling, you know. Came out uh-huh. me one day. He said, Max, if I get you a really nice piano and bring it over to your house, your house, will you stop coming into my <laughs> sessions and playing? <laughs> I said, Ron, I really don't know how to take that. <laughs> so sure enough, like one day, up within a week, he bought a, a seven foot six Steinway, I think. And he needed it to be played. It had to be built. 
So for probably seven months, I had this, you know, $50,000 piano in my little house. Oh, my gosh. So Kenny, who I had met through Mike McDonald, um, he, you know, was just such a good guy. And he said, I'm stuck on this song. I need help. So I was kind of, at that point, I was kind of a guy who would, people would come to me when they were stuck with their song. Mm -hmm. And I would sort of write a typically write a bridge for somebody and then yeah. reorganize the song. And I don't know why I'm totally disorganized, but that was one skill <laughs> I could reorganize that. Wow. <laughs> so Kenny came over with all this music and I just kind of helped him organize it. I, I may have written <laughs> some small piece of that, <laughs> wow. but I mostly just went in and edited it. And I think I did write, you know, a handful of pieces uh, to, to sort of, as you would edit a scene, uh-huh. At the end of a scene to get into the next scene, there weren't sure. really, there were there wasn't a spot cut, yeah. so I brought, would write some small piece of music to be the last dovetail into the next thing and have to write a dovetail. <laughs> That's how I remember it. But okay. I don't listen okay. to that song often. I I only recently listened to it and it was like, holy cow, what a great song! <laughs> yeah, I just uh, played it again yesterday to get ready because I knew we were talking today. It's pretty epic in spo- in scope, and I just wondered, is this what? Max had in mind when he wrote this song. Um, well, Kenny sure. had Kenny had that in mind. I just sort of said, "Okay, oh, let's figure okay. it out and figure out where yeah. it's going." Fascinating. Now, also around this time, I, from what I can see, it looks like you start becoming a pretty slightly in demand backup singer. You're you're are you on? Do you think I'm sexy by Rod Stewart? Because I don't think there's a lot of background vocals on there, but you're on that album, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Carmine was another one of those guys who found me uh, mm-hmm. and uh, he was always trying to write songs and he would come over and grab me. He was a friend of Les Dudex. Okay. So Carmine called me out of the blue, which was typical in LA. You just get a phone call. Yeah. Back in that very sweet time. That was the end of everybody getting in a room and somebody going one, two, three, right. four. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, it's oh, like man. that's the museum teeth now, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. That was Carmine. I did not sing okay. on, uh, if you think I'm sexy, I can't right. remember what I sang on, but... Okay, you're um, in there somewhere. She took me way upstairs and she wiped me clean Oh, I didn't realize she made a first-class food out of me Oh, Maggie, if you're still out Yeah, I'll tell you a funny story about that quick story. Please. Uh, it was, I was on, it was on a street. Uh, it might have been on you know, Sunset and Wilcox, someplace like that. Great, great, beautiful studio. Tom Dodd was, we, we, oh, was producing. What a, yeah. what a great guy. And yeah. uh, I, I knew him through Tommy. Tommy had done a James Gang yeah. album, and I went mm-hmm. down there and worked on the Moon Under Miami <laughs> album. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay. Hello. 
that should have been enough to scare everybody. But so Tom Dowd is doing Tom Dowd is doing the Rod Stewart record. Um, we're taking a list break, and I walked outside, and it was a really nondescript looking, you know, like you push a bunch of buttons on a security thing and you walk through the door. There was nothing uh-huh. that said studio, or it was in a funky part. And this 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 uh, you know strutting black guy came down the street. He said, "What are you doing here?" And I said, well, "I'm recording." I was leaning up against the wall, you know, uh-huh. getting a breath. I said, uh, I'm recording in a studio in here. There's a recording studio in there? I said, yeah. He said, who are you recording with? And I said, I thought, well, what the hell? I said, Rod Stewart. <laughs> who are you recording with? Rod Stewart. Uh-huh. He looks at me and he goes, he looks at me and he goes, bullshit. He walks off. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> The glamour oh, and the glory of Hollywood. That. I love that. Oh, what a great story. That's the best. Oh, I love it. Oh, cool. Okay, so I gotta ask you about what I gotta ask you about another one. Are you on the Flirting with Disaster album by Molly Hatchet? Yes. You're in there too. Yeah, yeah I How sang did on that. that happen? Well, uh, you know, I sang on that um he just passed away, I think of his name in a moment. Bobby Womack. Song. Oh, it's Rolling Stone. I used to love her, but it's all over now. Uh huh. Bo- Bobby Womack wrote that. Yeah. Um, and Tom. You're on that song, Wor- right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. really kind of plain as day out there. Tom Warman, God bless him. He had me sing on a number of things. I did a Motley Crue record, the oh. Smoking in a Boys Room record. But yeah, that, that was that was just a, a, a great time when okay, you just get a call. And Tom was one of those yeah. guys who would call me, and I learned a lot. Wow. It was they were great. It was really learning how to record and understanding how my voice sounded. And sure, I recall I didn't like it. It was like I gotta get better, you know. It's, you but didn't I, like your like, own voice? One of the greatest I voices didn't. ever? Oh, my gosh. No, thank you. Wow. But, uh, you know. Do you like it <laughs> anyway, now or do you still? I mean, this is, a, this is actually a really interesting question. Have you grown to like, no one likes the sound of their own voice, but I'm assuming a singer, especially someone as good as you, would either warm up to it or learn to live with it or learn to love it. How do you view your own voice today? Well, I learned how to structure it and how to okay. get rid of some of the things that I that were bad um, qualities. 
And okay. um, eventually, I, I did get to the point where I was like, okay, that's good. Oh, okay. Wow. Interesting. Okay. Well, I'm here to tell you it's it's a piece of work. It's one of the best. <laughs> Anyone who's heard it knows well, thank this. You. Thanks. So, yeah. Okay, so right around the same time, you are working on your first album, right? Whistling in the Dark. Now, are you, I mean, you're this guy from Omaha, right? Midwestern. You've come to L.A. You're getting. You're singing with Rod Stewart and all these artists. When you start working on your first album, are you starting to think, this is it. This is like the. This is an even bigger break. This just keeps getting better and better. I, I sort of felt that way. I never had a. You know, I was really naive about the business of it and everything. Mm. Uh, and my my um, my favorite records were always just albums. I, I mean, okay. I loved songs, obviously, and I never. Uh-huh. But I never, I never had the grasp of like, well, what's a hit record, you know? Okay. I just yeah. thought if you're if you're really really good and you can touch people, that that will be the song that will work. Somebody asked me once what they thought a hit song was, and I sort of said it impromptu, and I saw it in print later. It was during this 38 special thing, and a, a song to me, I told this guy, a hit song is a poetic expression of a common experience. Ah, oh, there and you so go. I, I thought uh, that that's kind of how I always felt. So as as um, when I started doing that record, I just I had a bunch of real quirky songs, and then uh, there was a song called Sailfish that mm-hmm. to this day people people will you know come up to me and talk about that song. songs that Mike Mike Fittingham recorded that I that you know that was attached to that Dewey Brothers moment style. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Uh, but uh that that whole thing was more about here is a nice big fat check and uh it was like, oh my God, but you know. So yeah. I called my dad I said, What do I do? Buy a house. <laughs> really? Did so you? I, I bought a yeah, I bought a beautiful little house in Studio City and when I was done I had one payment and a hundred bucks. So it was like, okay, that's some pressure. <laughs> and a little girl, you know, little bitty baby girl. But I thought, I'm going to make this work. Oh, and wow. so we had this really cozy, cozy little spot right in the middle of, uh, right off Ventura in Studio City. It was really a great little house, a one owner house. Yeah. And that was a place, a great, great gathering place for people to come. I believe it. Oh, and, it's, and the, rec- it's the record company, you know, Someday I hope I can publicly apologize to those guys at Christmas. They weren't happy with me when I did that because they, their vision of what I should do was, you know, buy a van and employ three musicians and 
leave for nine months. Yeah, and yeah. I was just, you know, with a naive country guy from Nebraska. Sure, like, I can't sure. do that. My wife's just had a baby, you know. Right, right. And, then, and so that was not good for my career. <laughs> Interesting. Oh, that's too bad. Well, and that album is actually, in fact, both of your first albums, well, all of them, honestly, but the Max and Whistling in the Dark are both really hard to find. I had to listen to Whistling in the Dark on YouTube because it's, I collect CDs, I don't collect vinyl. So it's, uh, I think that would be my only chance. But do you, um, I think somewhere in here too is an Elton John sing along, right? Yeah, that was another one of those. I'm babysitting and two little kids and the phone rings, you know. It was James Newton Howard who had produced the, uh, oh. the second Dudek Finnegan, or the first Dudek Finnegan and Krieger album. Okay. And, uh, he lived right down the street from me in Studio City and said, I'm here working with Elton. Can you come down and sing on this? And I said, well, my wife won't be home for about an hour. I find I'm babysitting. <laughs> and he said, well, well, we can wait for you. <laughs> really? Right? Yeah. So it was like, okay. It was like Elton John, of course, who had uh-huh. been more influential, more influential on me than uh, as the, the most influential white musician, I guess. Sure. Okay. And I'm as a piano player, I was not nervous, but really starstruck. And so yeah. it was Bill Champlin and Dee Murray and me, and we sang on this tune called Little Genie, which was yeah. one of his, he had five gold singles. It was a 45. Mm-hmm. So I have this really cool four, gold 45 uh, uh, album of, uh, or record of uh, Little Genie. It was awesome. He said, we were all wow. in there just kind of trying to, doing it like a soul group, you know, and he said, uh-huh. it sounds great, but I want you guys to sound like the impressions. <laughs> Interesting. So that's oh, how we did that. Wild. Okay. You step into my life like a bad dream. Real soft yes. like that, you know? Yeah. It's, it's beautiful when it comes on. And- it's great. It's great. Wow. And then are you, I, I'm sorry, I know I keep asking, I got to ask about these little, you know, these steps along the way. In your career, are you in there singing "Kick 'em when they're up, kick 'em when they're down" on "Dirty Laundry" on the Don Henley? No, album? I I sang uh, the title track on that album. I can't okay. stand still. I know you love me. You know 
And it was just me. I don't know. They triple or quadruple tracked me or something. Okay. That's where you are. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I had to, I was wondering about that. And you worked with Glenn too and Timothy. Did you, how did you get in with the Eagles and their kind of, their group? After Chrysalis released me and gave me another nice check, God bless Mm -hmm. those guys, Mm -hmm. uh, I went and I leased the beautiful studio up in what they call now uh, NoHo, North Hollywood. And it was uh, owned by Debbie Reynolds. Big, beautiful new place. She would walk through there and stand around and talk, and she was so sweet. You know, I had such a crush on her when I was a kid. Oh, interesting. Um, So I had this really great, real recording studio. I had no gear in it. Um, huh. and, but it was a nice, pretty nice size control or, or um, a recording room. And I just started, I was free and had some money. And I just started calling everybody I could, everybody I knew, got my phone book out uh-huh. and, and started organizing jams. Mm. And pretty soon a bunch of guys came by and with horns, and that was uh, Rick Schlosser, who, would, okay. who played on tonight, who played on tonight, the night. And uh-huh. Andrew Kastner, and we started playing soul songs because that uh-huh. was what I was doing when I was a kid. And yeah. they were like, you know what? Let's put together a soul band. Wow. So that's where Jack Mack and the Heart to, Attack comes in. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So one thing led to another, and pretty soon we had we had too many guys that we wanted to be in the band, so we stopped at ten, and we thought, <laughs> well, what the hell? You know, well, we're not yeah. making money, so that's it. right. And they wanted me to be the B3 player. I said, I'm not going to drag a B3 around for no money. I'll just be <laughs> yeah, the standard right. singer. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, so that, that was the beginning of that. I remember Jack Mack and the Heart Attack from, I believe, the movie Tough Turf. Does this sound familiar? Are you? I don't think that's you're right in after, that movie, that, though. Are you? No, that's 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 right after I left. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But anyhow, we were playing in bars in L.A., and this friend of ours, Josh Leo, was playing with Glenn Fry and um, doing um, the tracks uh, off his first solo record, um, No Fun a Lot, uh-huh. and. Josh, Josh said, uh, Glenn, I got to leave early. I got a gig. He said, you can't leave early. And, <laughs> and, uh, do you, do you know Glenn? Have you ever heard Glenn talk? Uh, Glenn Fry, just on like that yeah. Eagles documentary and then movies. He just says this classic. Everybody can do his voice, you know? Uh-huh. So Josh is like, I got to go play with these guys. And he, and, and he had pulled his guitar out to put it back in his case. And there was a set list there and it was all these soul songs. And so, Glenn relented, and he goes, well, I'll tell you what, I'll come down and see these guys. They play soul music. He said, Josh, they better be good. 
<laughs> so I did I knew who Glenn was, but yeah, you know, and I loved all those songs, obviously. Sure, sure. Um, and then all of a sudden, we're playing this joint somewhere out in in the beach in Venice, and in comes this really cool guy with with a black satin Eagles jacket on and a Budweiser in his hand. Hey, next, I'm Glenn. I'm going to get you guys a record deal tomorrow. No way. And he did. And he did. He did. <laughs> yeah, the next day I'm sitting in my house playing piano. The phone rings. Max, <laughs> it's Irving Azoff. <laughs> what? Hey, Irving, wow. how are you doing? <laughs> hey, listen, Glenn said that you guys are sliced bread. Come on down here and talk to me. No way. So that was wow. Fun. Wow. What a charmed life. Now, so tell me, though, I mean, when when your first two solo albums come out, and I really have no concept of how well they did or if you had hits off those albums or, you know, if you if they sold much, I assume you probably went on tour uh, to promote them. Were you, what were those shows like? Were you opening for people? Were, were you the headliner? Do you have any, I mean, interesting stories or anecdotes or memories from those times? No, those records really not, did gain no altitude and, uh, I went out and had a band in L.A., which was a killer band, including Snuffy Walden on guitar. Ooh, wow. The biggest, the biggest uh, uh, television composer of life. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and Jimmy Hassett uh, on bass. But, no, I couldn't get any traction. And huh. uh, it was just kind of, I'm not sure why. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm really not. I tried pretty hard, but uh, it just didn't work. And I, you know, I took it pretty hard. I took it pretty hard in those days. But the more I realized, it's like, well, you know, you probably shouldn't have spent all this money on this house. Uh-huh. <laughs> really? Because I'm wondering, I wondered about that. Did you, do you have any regrets about, I mean, it sounds like you did the most practical, logical things, buying a home, investing back in your family and kids and everything. Do you ever regret that? Was there a better way to have gone about this? No, no. And I, and okay. I wasn't. I wasn't really prepared um, to, for that whole thing. Um, I was the kind of guy who would lock himself in a room and play piano for five hours. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I was still really learning a lot and still trying to figure out my voice. And when I got in Jack Mack and readjusted myself to um, what my voice was and started singing all these classic, wonderful yeah. songs, that certainly made me a better songwriter. And... uh I had, was having a really bad night at uh, Rosemary Butler. Um, you know Rosemary? I don't know her. She's, she's the running on Empty Girl, you know? Oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Voice way in the background. Yep. Just a wonderful girl. She came up to me at a Jack Mack gig, which was a night of total frogness from me singing. <laughs> and uh, she said, you're going to ruin your voice. Here. Here's a guy. She gave me this card. And uh, his name was Mark. Forest, but his real name was Lorenzo Dienye. <laughs> and he wow. had this great little studio right across the street from Chinese Grauman, or Grauman's Chinese. Uh-huh. And uh, go up to the fifth floor and walk in this little room <clears throat> and a small empty room and, and, and then a music room with a grand piano. And uh, he was this amazing guy. He was Steve Reeves' stand-in. He had like a 52-inch oh, chest. Really? He was a weightlifter. And I have a loud voice, you know, and I thought, uh-huh. I'm going to show this guy something, you know. <laughs> Cocky, I guess. But And I yeah. started singing, and he was like, that's pretty good. But try it like this. And he'd start singing, and it was just like hurt. 
you know, the room was just like the, the standing wave of this voice, like a car horn. Oh, and, wow. Uh, so that was uh, 81, and that was the best advice I ever got. And really? What he taught me, <clears throat> uh, I have gotten through all these years with, uh, for instance, that, the other night was the worst night I had since 2003. So I oh, went through no. 14 years of not having oh. a bad gig. And the only time I ever have a bad gig is when I'm sick. Yeah. But I don't well, have a, I don't have a bad gig with my voice, and um, it gets harder every year to sing those high notes. But it just means you have to work yeah. at it all. It's just lifting yeah. weights. <laughs> right. right. So it's, I'd rather do that. Go through go through all the stuff and keep those high notes. Sure. And have them drop down and get lazy, and then it's too late. You know. Yeah. But yeah. I'm, that's okay. what that's what that whole experience taught me. Was interesting. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay, now I got to ask you. I, I promise we'll just a couple more of these. I think these stories are so interesting. Now, Bette Midler records one of your songs again, "Only in Miami." That song is great, and I'm not even a big Bette Midler guy, but uh, that song is awesome. And you wrote that. My dad used to go to Cuba all the time when I was a kid. Uh, my dad invented the modern corn dryer <laughs> when he was young, and what? never really got it. Yeah, never really got little company out of Columbus, Nebraska, and it was owned by the company. But he could anywhere he went, he could walk in the door, and, and uh, his name was Carl Carl Otto Gronenthal. <laughs> and he said, "I'm Carl Gronenthal. I invented that thing." Uh-huh. And I was like, "You're hired," you know. Yeah. He would go to Cuba all the time because no one knew how to fix these things but him and his partner. So wow. he came back from Cuba between 52 and 56 um, with all these records. And he'd play accordion and my mom would play piano. And my sister and I would dance around the living room to Cuban music. And uh, when the Marielle Bolt lift happened in probably 81, I think. Remember that? Yeah. I That's do. what that song was about. Oh, and uh, I sat at my piano at my little house in Studio City watching TV and was crying, seeing all these people were being pushed out to sea, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I, that mother was a fan of Jack Mack, and she would she would, came over to me one time and said, I want you to come over to my house and sit on me every song you ever wrote. Really? <laughs> so I thought, okay. Wow. So I went over there, and I, I sang that song eventually, and she, uh-huh. it uh, provoked her to tears, so... 
Um, you know, wow. the, the coolest thing of another, so she recorded this song. Um, about 10 years later, I'm on a plane and I pull out of one of those sky high or whatever they call uh-huh. them, uh, uh-huh. magazines. Yeah. And there's, I pull open a page and there's a, a drawing of Gloria Estefan, a big article about it. And the top, the name of the article, big print was only in Miami. And I was like, wow. So they, throughout the article, you know, they were, talking about certain things and then they finally said name this name that what's the best this what's the best that uh-huh. and then they said um what's the best song ever written about miami and she said only in miami really oh that yeah that's pretty neat huh what a compliment to you yeah that's I've never amazing. met her I, sooner or later i hope i can meet her and say yeah um, i you know who raul malo is I, um, that's another he, name i think i recognize uh, he's a great singer. Um, um, any, anyhow, I met him, and, and he's Cuban. And I said, okay. um, he said, Raul, I, I, I said, Raul, I, I, I wrote only in Miami. And he <laughs> said, no, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So the people who know, know that that song is gold, that that's, a, that's a, an important piece of, of music there. That's amazing. Good for sweet. you. That is great. And then Bet it's on her greatest. Yeah, it's on her greatest hits. It's made me a lot of money, and it was just one of those. I had nothing to do but just a pure emotional moment that was Dang. that was sparked by fifty or forty at that point, thirty-five years of experience with my yeah. Cuban music. Wow, good for you, Max. That's amazing. Okay, so I just got to ask you about one or two. Well, first of all, actually, let's get to The Circle, because now your third solo album comes out in 85, The Circle, and that's another one that I had to listen to on YouTube, because it's not out there. Uh, I (laughs) So, okay, so I went out to L.A., Studio City, actually, just a couple of weeks ago, um, to co-host another uh, music podcast, and I was allowed to bring um, 20 of my favorite songs of the 80s and i brought the circle as being one of them because it's one of my all-time favorite songs and i've said this i said this on that podcast and i felt this way now i don't i don't quite understand what you're talking about in that song and it but and i'm not really a lyrics person but in that one i want to sing along you know i want to be able to belt it out in the car when i'm in there by myself but i don't actually know what you're talking about other than Love is the Circle or something. I'm not sure. But um, I lo- just love that song so much. Do you know how that song got put into Weird Science? Is there a story behind the song or the album? Any particular memories? You know, I'm trying to know, of course. I'm you know, having a, because of my you know, altered brain here on, on uh, Nate Dayquil. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. John, the, the producer of that record uh, or that movie who did the... Uh, uh, stay at home or alone at home. John. Yeah, home alone. John Hughes. Yep, that was his John Hughes. legendary period. He'd done Sixteen Candles and Breakfast Club and yeah. Bueller and everything. Yeah. Well, I came back with that song from from um, Europe, and uh, and uh, which I wrote with Alan Pasqua, who's this brilliant jazz pianist, a uh, professor at now at uh, USC, and huh. uh, composer. And a great friend, just a wonderful guy. Um, I came back with that song, and and MCA was flipped out over it. And and I got a call from somebody there and said, John Hughes just walked in and we played him your song, and he loves it. He's going to put yeah. it in his movie. 
Yeah. So unfortunately, I never got to meet him. It was oh, such a tragic bad. day when he just dropped. Yeah. But oh. uh, yeah, that was that was a pretty amazing moment. That song was number one in uh, Munich, uh, and it was also really? number one number one in the Canadian uh, MTV channel. That video. Really. So it's just wow. one of those things where it's like yeah. It was like, you know, something is just keeping me at home. So I, that's, yeah. I kept, I thought, okay, uh, just, you know, stay at home and try to keep yeah. all this together. That is and fascinating. So, and, you know, I don't know if you, I don't know how much you know about John Hughes or whatever, but it's, it's a, it's an especially big compliment to you because he was a big music guy. And those movies, especially the six that he made there in the eighties that were so teen focused have impeccably curated soundtracks and he per he personally picked every song uh, everything every song that are pla that's played in these movies are the things that he was into at that moment and he was very meticulous about when in what music went into his movies and so the fact that your song showed up in there that's a very big compliment to you that's not just a random oh i like this song i'll throw it in my movie from a guy who doesn't care or isn't invested in that process. So I, um, anyway, I think that I, whether you knew that or not, hopefully you know it now. It's uh it, that's a very big compliment to have anything in a John Hughes movie. So, and those movies live on. I mean, they never die. The breakfast club and weird science and pretty in pink. And I mean, there's a generation like me who grew up on those movies and he hearing those songs and they mean the world to us. And you're part of that fabric. That's kind of amazing, you know. I knew that, and I and I was. That's why when he passed away, I was so oh. crushed because I thought yeah. sooner or later I'm going to walk into a room and it's going to be John Hughes, and I'm going to say thank yeah. you so much, you know. Oh wow, yeah. wow. Now you had mentioned one of the things we talk about in this podcast very sensitively is the money side of things, because I always think it's kind of interesting to find out how, like I said earlier, sort of the littler guys or the behind-the-scenes guys or whatever, the less obvious people make a living in music, which it sounds like you've done for your whole life, right? It doesn't sound like you ever went out and had to get a regular desk job or whatever. Um, that movie, Weird Science, is still played a lot. I would imagine you get a, a decent little royalty from every time that movie gets played. Um, I don't know. Yes, Am I course. wrong? And I, and okay, I, good. You know, I have, a, I have a bunch of songs... Um, that have been recorded by different people. Aaron yeah. Neville recorded a song that's a, a platinum album. Um, I know that one of them is just right for me. I've looked up, down, downtown, all around searching. I know she's out there waiting for me. Somewhere, somebody looking, longing. Somewhere, somebody. Waiting for me Somewhere, somebody Searching, praying Tell me where the world Can this girl be? You know the streetlights shine In those passing faces I keep trying to catch Somebody's eye But all the shit have been
Uh, Joe Cocker, the last big hit Joe Cocker had, which is in 97, was a song uh, that I co-wrote, and so it's on his greatest hits. Things. Yeah, I, yeah. I've never been, I've never been the big, had the big year, uh, yeah. which happens to so many people. Which it, it sort of like, I've always been the guy at the end of the bench. I've always, I've, I've loved basketball, so I was related to that. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm the, I'm the 12th man. I've made the squad. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm doing what I want to do. Right. You know. And you're a role um, player. Yeah. That's right. You know, put yeah. me in. I'll, I'll follow. I'll, I'll follow the guy who can't shoot free throws. Right. <laughs> right. Right. I'll follow out <laughs> I in love seven it. minutes. <laughs> I love it. Oh, that's great. That is great. So, okay. I've been consistent. I started yeah. you know, in 1969 and I made some I've made some money. That's amazing. I'm not rich. You. No, I'm but not hey, rich. You can I've never keep been doing rich, what you, you can keep doing what you want to do, right? Yeah. That's I'm very enough. lucky. That's success right there. Okay, now um I may ask you about Dan Fogelberg and body rate and everything, but I want to get to second chance and 38 special. How does this happen? I mean, I got to admit too. I mean, for a guy who is as incredible singer as you are, I wondered if those first ten years or so that they weren't quite finding the right slot. Where do we put Max Carl? We have this guy. He's a great songwriter and an amazing singer. And 
how do we best present Max and his talents to the world? Did you ever feel that way, or were you just thinking, hey, this is good, I'm making a living, and now I'm going to go join 38 Special, and life is good? A little bit of both. Okay. I, I, I struggle, too, because people are like, well, what are you? Are you a soul singer? Are you a rock singer? And I I was just kind of just too sick. I was like, what the hell difference does it make? You know, yeah. if, you, yeah. if you got somebody, but it made a difference, and I see that now. Um, yeah. And I am when a... Uh, um, um, I made a, a second record for um, um, MCA that never got released, and uh, I was um, sitting pretty good once once again. And, okay. Um, I was waiting for the phone ring, and people were calling me, and I got a number of calls. And one of the interesting one was Frank Zappa. Whoa. Who was about to, about to go out and do the uh, um, rock the vote or whatever the thing was. Okay. Uh -huh. Signed up to vote thing, and just a super guy. And uh, and then I got a call from a friend and said, you know, this band 38 Special. And it was strange because I lived in Studio City, but there was no cable there. There was some kind of cable wars there. Oh, and so I I lived there through '86 and never had anything but three television channels of rabbit ears. <laughs> right? I never watched MTV once. Oh, so I moved out to Northridge and got this really cool mid-century modern house with a pool uh -huh. and a big yard. It was gorgeous. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to quit and, you know, just like be a pool guy. Yeah. And, uh, of course, that was crazy. But um, <laughs> the, the phone started ringing, and I was having a ball because I had I was had MTV. I watched it all the time. Oh, sure. And uh, 38 Special had a song in a movie. And um, I'm trying to see the name of the movie. Or uh, song. Was it Teachers? It might have teacher, been. Teacher, Teacher, um, Can You Teach Me? I think it was written by Brian Adams, but it, they had a big... Or uh, Take Me Back to Paradise from um, Revenge of the Nerds 2. I think that was them I don't as know well. what it was, but anyway. they were on MTV, and I, and okay. they were just... They sounded like the cars to me, and they were really energetic, uh -huh. and it was really uh -huh. cool. And so somebody called and said, the singer in 38 Special quit, and can I send him some music of yours? And... uh I thought, yeah. Uh, I was I was considering a move like a real serious lateral move. Oh, okay. I just didn't know what it was, and so my manager called me, flew me down to to uh, Atlanta. I hung out with those guys. Really liked him. Uh, Donnie Van Zant is one of the nicest persons I've ever met in my life. Oh, good. And to be in a band with him was was, oh, he he was just like a a dream child. He would come to the door really? like a big grin. What's going on? You know, <laughs> like your like your favorite nineteen year old friend. Sure, Let's go yeah. get some beer. <laughs> yeah, it's morning. I don't care. <laughs> That's great. Um, I, I mean, it. it wasn't about that, but it was that guy. Sure, no, still it's is that, that kind guy. of energy. Sure. Yeah. So it's like okay, I could sell my house in L.A. and go down there, and I had already uh, begun to to uh, realize I needed to write a book about. The musical history. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. So I thought, so I thought they were close to St. Augustine, and I thought this is the oldest city in America. Mm -hmm. So why don't we move down there for a while and just soak all that stuff up? And if I'm going to be a writer of any um, salt, I'm going to have to live in the South. Yeah. So let's go do this. So the money was good, and we took off, and it was a good decision. My friends were like, "What are you doing?" Yeah. Right. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe I played myself out in this league. It's another league, <laughs> right. another coach. I'm right. going over there for a while. Yeah. Oh, wow. So you could do both. You could join 38 Special, and then you could also work on your book. Now, I want to ask you a lot about that book, but have you have you written books and they've come out, or are you consistently working on one big book? No, I have, I have not published anything. I wrote you an entire not, book okay. and, and threw about everything about 200, 250 pages away. Okay. And I was like, okay. I had to throw it away, but I just was like, okay, I've got a good start here, but writing a book is not like writing a song. <laughs> it's like yeah, I believe it. It's like writing 80 songs. So yeah. it's tough, but I've continually been working on it. It's getting better. Okay, okay. Just I was curious what the status of that was. So then they come, you know, they have one of their biggest hits ever with Second Chance that you write and sing. You know, Second Chance, it's funny. Uh, I don't know how you feel about this. I can think of at least three different times where I've been like in a restaurant with people and that song comes on and all of us say, who is this again? Who say this song is great. Do you guys remember who this is? And no one can remember. And we Shazam it or whatever the app is. And um, it comes up 38 special. And it's like, really? 38 special sings this song? I thought they were more like Leonard Skinner or something. I mean, they were always poppier than Leonard Skinner. I, I actually love 38 special. I have a lot of their stuff. But it's one of those songs that I think everyone knows but forgets who actually recorded it, you know? But that was yours, right? That had to have been the first really huge success you'd ever seen. Yeah, as a singer, for sure. And uh, yeah, yeah, it did have that. It did have that kind of. Uh, I'm not sure why, and and it's not. I I've stopped going back over things and mulling about them. Uh, mm -hmm. In general, hindsight is twenty twenty, but it doesn't really. It means you can see something really clearly. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean you can see the right things really clearly. Yeah, very true. And, very true. And the, the, outs, the, the bottom line of that song is I can walk into a room anywhere and sit down and play that song and everybody just mm -hmm. stops and moves over. I mean, whatever. But everybody's like, oh, my God. Um, yeah. And that's your song? Well, I co-wrote it. And, uh, and yeah, but I sang it. Yeah. So that yeah. song is, is continually every day of my life. Since you know 1990 or 89, that song has been a great big Christmas present. That's amazing. That's amazing. Good for you. When you've, I mean, you've been in the, you were in the game for, you know, 10, 15 years by that point, and then you have this major success. What's it like afterwards? Do you ever feel like you're chasing a high after that, or is it more of a one-off? Like I'm just grateful this happened and everything else is gravy, you know? Yeah, I think it's the latter. I think that really um, good for you. You, I mean, th there were days when I was upset about something, and, and months, maybe, maybe a year sure. or two here and there, where I was continually hawked by something. But you got to look at it like you know. Once again, it's like a sports analogy. Uh -huh. I got on that team, and I hung with that team, and then I went to this other team, and I hung with that, and then when I thought I was done, bam, championship season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Interesting. Okay. So that lasts a couple of albums, and then what brings your time at Thirty Eight Special to an end? Uh, too much travel. Uh, uh, we had one okay. more um, little boy, and I came home from a short trip, and he wouldn't come back to my arms. He was like, oh. he, he was seven months old, and he didn't know I was. Yeah. And I was like, that's it. I can't yeah. do that. Yeah. Okay. 
And um, so the 90s were kind of quiet, it seems like, maybe. What did you do during that time? You're now in St. Augustine. Are you still playing the music game? Are you living on your success? What do you do during Actually, I went from St. I went from I went from St. Augustine to Atlanta, and oh, from Atlanta okay. I went to I went to Nashville um, mm. in '93. Um, okay, and that's Glenn Fry, Fry jumped back into my life. Then um, I made a record. He started a little record company around me, and I made a record. Oh wow! I I put together a band there. Oh, that's Big right. Band. Yeah, the one groove, one yes. That's another yeah. one that I've only read about, and I've heard like. A couple of songs on YouTube, but it's hard to find that one too. Okay, yes, well, the, I remember that now. There was a song that Glenn and I and Jack Kempson wrote called One More River. Like 20, I have this great chart where I'm 21, Chicago's 22, and Eric Clapton's 23. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> right. Oh, that's great. So it got some, it got some, you know, had a little bit of steam. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I was in Nashville writing and had a great record or publishing deal with Almo Irving. And okay. um, I had a handful of success there. And the Joe Cocker thing really helped me out a lot. Yeah, and, uh, sure. It was another one of those kind of like, okay. Yeah, this is good. This is good enough. I'm, I'm yeah. back. I'm on a team. Yeah, and uh, just keeps trudging along. What a great! That's right. I love. I love that you have the enough perspective to know what your lane is. You know what your talents are, how to what to shoot for, but not to overshoot for. To keep everything in perspective, I think that's really healthy. I love that. You, that's your perspective on this. It wasn't like every game I walked away from and somebody sure. elbowed me, and I was like, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> I mean, I, I picked right. some fights I shouldn't have. Yeah, and, um, okay. I, you know, bore some scars that uh, that I should have just forgot about. But yeah. eventually all those things are like, uh, I, I tell you, this is something I, that actually happened to me, and I think this is a big turning point in my life. I was probably like 46, and I woke up one day and I thought, um, Something had gone wrong, mm. and I thought I I deserve more than this. Uh-huh. And then instantly, my my brain went, "No, what you should be yeah. saying is, how did I deserve all this?" Yeah, yeah. That's and so that was the, like kind of the last sort of drop in the yeah. um, Meyer flask. Like everything yeah. cleared up. Where it's just like you're still in a game. You're playing. Yeah. Shut up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Better off than most people out there. Right. Um, well, interesting. I'm, okay. You know, yeah, I don't know about that. I don't that, just but mean I, financially. I don't mean just financially, but I mean you've 
you've had, you know, there's thousands of people dotting LA looking for their big break and trying to make it. And you're at least in there playing the game to some degree, you know? Absolutely. So, yeah. And, 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 and I have to say too, that, that working on, the more I work on this book, the more I read about, uh, have you seen this little website I have? It's not much. Uh, maxcarl.net. Have you gone there? No, I've just been, no. Let me go on there right now. Um, I have this project that, this, that the book is Songs, Souls, and Stories. American Music and Songs. Oh, Souls yeah, yeah. I did see this once. Yes. Okay, yes. So as I, as I would go along and just um, continually write something down on a napkin or a scrap of paper or actually spend a day with a computer, compile all these notes. What struck me was that there were so many people who were so much better than I, mm. and they just had freaking miserable lives and yeah. got nothing. Interesting. And died alone or yeah. tragically or bitter. Yeah. And the more I got into that, I was like, shut up, Max. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy yourself. Things are okay. <laughs> Right. Um, okay. Well, then Grant Funk comes calling. And, I mean, this has to have been – I've been trying to get a hold of you since last fall, since that night where I stayed up for two hours listening to The Circle on a loop. And um, I remember think, – I think it was last September, August, something like that. And I remember looking at the Grant Funk website, and you guys have shows – Never ending, you know, basically like a couple of weeks every year round, basically. And I'm thinking, man, when am I going to find a moment for Max when he'll talk to me? So, I mean, that had to have been sort of a blessing in your life, right? I mean, how did that, how did that happen? And how did you feel? And how are you doing now with that? Well, uh, you know, to begin with, that started in 2000, December of 2000. Now, we're in 2017, the same five guys. We're starting our 17th year together. That's wild. So that, that speaks volumes right there. Yeah, uh, I was I was in I was in L.A. trying to uh, um, figure out what to do. I came back out of Nashville uh, once again and headed out there thinking, well, maybe I can pull something off out here. And um, I got this call uh, from a drummer inventor. Um, and it was like, oh, God, he said, Don Brewer wants to talk to you. And I thought he just wanted to talk about drums. I, uh -huh. I, part of what happened to me in Nashville in my pursuit of the stories of American music was that I ran, kept running across this genre called Mississippi Fights and Drum. You ever heard of that? Mm. Uh-huh. I saw you talk about it on a show that I watched on YouTube. Yeah. So yeah. I met this, this gentleman, Otha Turner. That was a big turning point in my life, too. I was 48, and he was 84, and he was like, oh, my telling drums. And I, wow. I remember that day I've been walking around feeling sorry for myself. I'm getting uh -huh. so old, Jesus, what am I going to do? I'm so old, I'm pushing 50. <laughs> in right. the room comes this man who's, you know, 84, and he I said, I introduced myself, and he said, nice to meet you, son. And I thought, yeah, okay, I'll take son. Sure. That's good. Right. And it, it just nice. was another one of those slaps in the face, like, you know, get yeah. up. Yeah. You call yourself a fighter? Get up. Yeah, right. So I got involved in that whole thing, uh, Mississippi Fife and Drum, and got to know his whole family. And we did. We got a 
grant from the NEA and wrote a little play around all this stuff with the um, National uh, Dance Theater and it was just wow. Tennessee Dance Theater. And we played we we played at the uh, at the Ryman. We did this show at the Ryman. Oh, interesting. Know, right? And it was just me writing all this dialogue and then wrote, wrote a bunch of songs and around Mississippi fife and drum. Huh. And Osa came up to play with us. And we eventually did a bunch of gigs together. Um, but people, drummers, always wanted to talk to me because uh-huh. they struck a chord with the, all, all these drummers. I, I was looking for, I went to the Library of Congress, and I was looking for the first moment that um, African Americans, Native Americans, and European Americans mm-hmm. played music together, and it turned out to be fife and drum music. Interesting. And, uh, all the way th- 300 years later, this, yeah. this little weird, little wonderful wildflower in the field of American folk music is this still existing uh, thing, and here is the living patriarch of it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Who, who passed? Who passed away? He was 94 years old in in 93. And so I was doing all that stuff, and so I got this call, and I thought, Don Brewer, oh God, that's awesome. But you know, I was going through a bunch of stuff, just trying to keep my family together and working sure. on projects. I had two kids in college, third grader <laughs> at yeah. home, and um, money was going out the window, and I just didn't have the time to call him. And he called three times, and I thought, you know what? Oh, wow. I needed to talk to him. Yeah. And yeah. I really had no idea what I was going to do. And uh, he, I'd been in LA for some months and it was like, oh, I'd go down yeah. to those mines. I used to just go into and they were empty. Is anybody here? here? Right, you know? right, right, right. <laughs> Does anyone remember me? <laughs> well, there was no one there to remember me. They'd yeah, all left true, town, true. You know? yeah. I ran into Alan Pascal, who I wrote the circle with. And I said, what's the scene now? He said, man, there is no scene. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So and, well, now it's uh, pretty much moved to Nashville, don't you think? It's like that's yeah, kind of the music sure. hub now. That's what I'm hearing. Well, that was it's that. Might, well, that might be its second coming. That happened, I yeah. think, uh, yeah. in the late '80s. So anyhow, I'm sitting there in LA, going, you know, drumming my fingers. Yeah, what am I do? Um, I call. So I called Don Brewer, and just this wonderful guy. And we talked for a few minutes. He said, "Well, here's what I'm trying to do. Um, Mark Farner has left, and we're looking for a singer." And we don't want to work that much, maybe about fifty shows a year. Uh-huh. Um, would you would you like to to be the singer? And I no said, audition, well, no, just we want you, and that's it. Well, set, I mean, I knew it would there be an audition. Okay. So I was like, let me think about it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. So I, I prepared wow. for that audition and sure. went up there and we ran through a bunch of stuff and I was like, okay, let's do this. Then, uh, I mean, it sounds like at this stage in your life, 
you've settled in to a very steady gig. Um, when you in your off hours, I mean, it sounds like you're playing just about every weekend somewhere in the country with Grand Funk. What do you do? I think you told me that you still are back in Omaha um, recording your own music. When you do that, do you work? Are you working toward solo albums? Are you working toward songs for Grand Funk? Are you working toward something that would go to someone else? What's the plan with the music that you make now? Well, I've been working on a on a really cool. A record you would really like. Oh, really? Uh, that, yeah, it's sort of a piano record that's not unlike listening in the dark only. It's a little oh, jazzier. Oh, nice. It's real easy. It's real big. It's. Uh, uh, I, I made a record. Uh, I mean, I, I worked on a TV show in the 90s called Pinks. It was on the oh. Speed Channel. Yeah. And uh, I, ma- I made a little CD there. There's some stuff. We do a song called Bottle Rocket. You can... Um, Google okay. that on. I will. On, um, on, uh, we'll YouTube play a little bit of it right here. Yeah, we'll play some of it. It's, and I made this, this learned how to do all along, like the circle I played. Jimmy played, Jimmy Hassett played bass, and, and, uh, Eddie Zion from Hollandos played drums, and there was another guitar on that, but that, that, uh, guitar player, German, great German guitar player's name is Casey right now. Uh, but on that whole album, I, I played a lot of drum stuff. I played a lot of that stuff. Some songs are just me playing. So over the years, I've gotten better at that. And I did this this stuff for this TV show, um, Pinks, and I got better at that. Although I go back now and I really really made some serious, silly engineering mistakes, but that's okay. It was earn while you learn. (laughs) Sure, sure. So I I got better at that. And then around 2007, I started really seriously recording this piano record. And... uh, I cut 22 songs. It's really a lot of work. It takes you about a month to finish a song by yourself. Sure. Um, so I'm now, I've got, cut it down to, to 11, and I really want it to be down to 10. And, okay. Uh, I'm working on that. I have a really great home studio. Excellent. So I'm close, to, I'm close to finishing that. I don't know exactly when or what I'll do with that. Okay. And then in the, in the meantime... Uh, do you know who Roger Lynn is, the drum machine guy? Uh, yes. Uh huh. Well, he invented this machine, new. Sure. Yeah, he invented this new instrument about uh, four or five years ago, and it came out maybe two years ago, called the okay. Linstrument, and it and it's a, a actual keyboard pad, but it's just a big rectangle with two hundred small pads on them that are as big as like a a, a stamp. Oh. Huh. And. It's incredible what it can do. They have this this new thing called multi-dimensional <laughs> MPE. <laughs> it sounds kind of pretentious, but it's wow. multi-dimensional performance something. But if okay. you can do stuff with this patch by moving your finger around, that that has four or five different. Uh, you can change the pitch. You can change the frequency response. You can yeah. change. Um, the vibrato, uh, you can change the, the strength of the sound of it. Uh, and so it's really almost like playing a horn with your fingers. Yeah. So you use, it has no sound, so you hook it up to a, your own uh, sound uh, bank. But I got it because I've, I've been a synthesizer guy since day one. I bought in 73. Really? I bought wow. a, an ARP Odyssey, and I sold a B3 for that. When I was playing in Tommy Bowen's band, uh-huh. I, I sold a B3 for the, an ARP Odyssey. 
at seventeen hundred bucks in nineteen seventy three, and I could have bought a farm for that. <laughs> Love it. But it was a good investment. And I, yeah. and I came to know Roger Lynn, you know. I I walked uh-huh. into his house, a friend of mine said, You gotta meet this guy in eighty two or something. And I was in these, you know, strips on the floor and, and all this gear and circuit boards and and it's like you push the button and it was like <laughs> it was like holy shit what is yeah. that yeah you know that is not a drum machine because it was like uh-huh. like the thing on a Lowry organ sure and so so I knew Roger since then and I would see him now and then I saw this thing and I called him and I said I want one so he sent me one and it is an absolute Rubik's cube, but I'm starting to get the throw of it. Really? It has 200, it has 200, uh, um, these little postage stamp size pads. Wow. And they all play notes. That's crazy. And it has a certain, it has a, a very complex, but a, a, a real path to it. Okay. But I thought this is a good thing for me to do for yeah. a lot of different reasons. And it's a good thing for my brain. Yeah. And so it got me back into synthesizers. And then I thought, who's going to care about this? And then all of a sudden I realized the more I started Googling stuff, there's this whole huge synthesizer world that's going oh, on. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All over all over the country. And yeah. I that's one of the places in Boulder. Yeah. So I kind of I kind of jumped back into that with both feet because I was like, I'm all about this. Yeah. I can I can work in analog synth. So I've, I've been working wow. on these projects. I got, I have, I kind of have a, an avenue, I want to complete a song and I have an avenue to present it with. Mm, um, yeah. And, and oh, you do have saying, an avenue. Because yeah, I talk to a lot of a, people who are working on, because they're, you know, it's mostly like legacy artists and they're working on new music, but they're just stymied as to what to do with it. You know, do I release it? Do I try to take it to a label? Do I put it out for free? Do I, how do I get this out there that no one knows? But you have an avenue. Well, That's great. Well, it's an idea. I don't know if it'll work or not. Okay. Okay. Right. You have an idea. That's good. Yeah. Good. So I got more work. I wake up in the middle of the yeah. night. Go back to work, <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> got an idea and it keeps you awake. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. Well, look, okay, so I just gotta I try to wrap up a lot of these conversations with a couple of questions. Number one, do you have any regrets about your career? Is there a thing when you look back and you think, Oh, if I had just done this one thing different you know, the ball might have bounced a little differently for me. Not that you would even need to think that, but I'm curious if you do. And then secondly, when you think back to, like, you know, you're sitting on your porch in Omaha and you're just thinking, I cannot believe the life I've had. I cannot believe this thing, whatever the thing is that comes to mind first, that most amazing memory, meeting a hero, going to a party, hearing your song on the radio. What are the, what are the answers to those two questions? Well, the answer to the first one in terms of regrets is, yeah, I have too many regrets and probably enough um, big-time regrets to fill up, you know. Oh, interesting. A, a page, but I think that's just kind of how it goes. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, especially when you're young. I was related constantly to basketball. You're under the basket and you're elbowing people, and later you realize, that was a nice guy, you know. You just yeah. treat him like, shit, why did you do that? Well, because yeah. I'm a basketball player and I'm under the hood. Right. <laughs> yeah, you can put your game face so, on, right? Yeah, Nothing personal. I mean, but so, so I uh, over time, I you know, I I I do wish I could 
sit down or at least address to a lot of people, especially industry people, uh, that I let them down. And that's 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 about it, you know. I okay. I mean, I, I I screwed up a lot of stuff, and I take responsibility for it. Wow, interesting. That's a healthy way to look at it. So, what are your what are your great memories then? Well, I have one, and it's the first page of my book, the greatest memory, musical memory in my life, and it changed my life in every respect. Jack Mack was playing a party in Dallas, Texas. It was Thunderbirds and us and James Brown. Mm. And about halfway through our set, in the room with three or four bodyguards comes James Brown. He just walks straight up to the stage. Oh my God. And he's just staring at us and he's yelling at us and laughing and laughing and clapping. And I was like, oh my God, that's James Brown. And he's big. Yeah. So yeah. We, we finished the show he played and we hung out after uh, to talk to him backstage. And he came out and he sort of latched on to me and he said, I'm playing tomorrow night at this gig, um, down, down in Dallas and you guys come down and set in. So we had the day off. We were going to stay there anyhow. So we went down there and end of the night, he goes back on for his encore and we had played this club before. So we had some fans there. So he introduced us. We all came up at 12 horns three guitar players, mm-hmm. four keyboard, but whatever it was, you know. And he said to me, you sing a verse and I'll sing a verse. So we did two or three songs and the place was, you know, apoplectic, you know. And yeah, so sure. He leaves the stage and everybody's, you know, screaming and hollering. We're just they're vamping on the end of the song trying to figure out how to empty it, to end it. And all of a sudden, everybody starts screaming again and I look up and I thought, what's that all about? And I felt something on my shoulders and I turned around and it was James Brown putting his cape on my shoulders. No. Really? He danced away going, he danced away going you, you, you. <laughs> what? Wow. So the, but the up, the up shot of all that was that in the two nights hanging out with him and his band, we all talked so much about different bands and such. And they were talking about all these guys I'd never heard of. Yeah. And one was this man named Louis Jordan, who uh, wrote one of the songs that everybody thinks is like a top five first rock and roll song. It's called Saturday Night Fish Fry. Do you know that song? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The chorus is, you know, we'll be rocking, we'll be rocking. Never seen such a nice girl until the break of dawn. It was really uh-huh. boom, 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 1948. Sure. And that's that's when I realized, oh my God, I know nothing about anything beyond soul music or, or Elvis Presley. Yeah. I didn't know who Mr. Jordan was. And that's when I just turned around. It was like, Looking down a, a you know, a yeah. canyon that you that you'd never gone through because you entered it yeah. at a certain point, you didn't realize. Yeah. Oh my God! Look at the beauty, the, the beauty at that other end of the canyon. Yeah. yeah. So that was the beginning of me realizing, okay, there's all this great music yeah. to to mine, and yeah. that was the, the game changer, and still is the most powerful moment of my life. Musically. Interesting. Isn't that uh, the people who really love music those have those moments where you get turned on to a particular artist or a genre or, you know, you like someone and then you find out the, who influenced them. And so you want to go track that down and it just never ends. And it's always music always makes me happy. Even if it's sad music, it makes me feel better. Always. You know what I mean? It's a never ending stream of 
of goodness that will never end, never dries up, never gets old. And there's always something to, to investigate and discover. That's the beauty of finding people like you, honestly, Max. I mean, that's why I started this thing was because I don't know if people like you get to hear that often enough. You know, you were moved by James Brown. I was moved by the circle and some, and it just, it goes in a circle. You know, we just keep finding things that make our life better musically. And you're one of those cogs in the wheel for me. And that's why I wanted to talk to you. So thank you for doing this with me. John, thank you so much. I really appreciate you reaching out to me. There you have it, Max Carl. I really enjoyed him a lot. And I liked especially when he was relating his career to being a 12th man on a basketball team. I'm a sports guy too, so I really related to that. If you're a 12th man, you're good enough to be a professional, but you're, you're a role player versus a superstar. And I think it takes a lot of hard-earned wisdom to be able to see that about yourself. And so I really respect that about Max, that he can be honest with himself that way. And he's great and super talented, obviously. So the song that I wanted to close this out with is the only song I could find off of his second solo album. It's just called Max. It was back when he was Max Gronenthal. The song is called Shanna. It's not a very good quality. I got it off YouTube, but you'll get the picture. It's a great song. Now, next week, is we have a very special guest next week because it is our second birthday. Not that Max isn't also a special guest, but this person uh, is a member of a band that has come up many, many times on this show. In fact, if you remember who our guest was last year, this person follows that same template almost exactly. I'll leave it at that, tease it out, see if you can figure it out who it is. Let me know if you do. So, speaking of letting me know, you can always find us on Facebook and like our page. Uh, we have a ton of new listeners now, thankfully. Th hello to everybody. Um, and a lot of you have been following me on, on Twitter, at The Hustle Pod. I appreciate that. I'm far more active on Facebook. So if you really want to connect or stay up to date or whatever, give our page a like. Drop me a line on there. You can uh, also send me an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. And uh, please subscribe if you haven't already. If you've heard a few of these and you like them, or even if you don't like them, go in and write us a review. It would be really helpful. Uh, huge thanks, as always, to my right-hand man, Yan the Man Makevich. All right, everybody. We will see you next Tuesday for our second birthday. Talk to you all later.